0: Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: I'm doing okay today, Tim. We have an interesting episode coming up for everybody to listen to. I'm doing okay because it's been 19 years since the disappearance of Brianna Maitland, and that is what this episode is primarily focused on. Before we get to it, Tim, how are you?
0: I'm doing okay as well, Lance. Yes, it's a bit of a solemn day here it is the 19-year anniversary of the disappearance of Brianna Maitland. Of course, Brianna Maitland went missing from Montgomery, Vermont, on March 19, 2004. Her vehicle was found about a mile away from her workplace, where she had just left a shift at the Black Lantern. And if you have any information in Brianna's case, you can call one 844 848 8477 and be sure
1: to check out investigationsforthemissing.org that's a nonprofit that Brianna's father started to help families investigate their missing loved ones cases when police and law enforcement are no longer able to this is an organization that he started in honor of Brianna and Tim and I have the privilege of being on the board of that so if you want to support that go to investigationsforthemissing.org
0: yeah and we'll hear from Bruce Maitland Brianna's father in the second half half of this episode, there's a segment that Jennifer Amell produced a couple years ago with Bruce, and they talk about private investigations for the missing quite a bit. And so you can find out more information about them at investigationsforthemissing.org. The first half of this conversation, Lance, is us speaking with private investigator Lou Barry, who has worked on the case for several years and has been on our airwaves on our missing Brianna Maitland series several times now.
1: That's right. And he's more than welcome to come back anytime with any sort of update, whether it's a big update, a small update, or even an update that he wants to tell us, but can't. And he'll shut us down anytime we try to dig a little bit deeper, but that's reassuring because that's why we know he's such a good investigator. And if you want to commemorate the anniversary of Brianna's disappearance, March 19th, feel free to light a candle or make a post on social media in any way that you see fit. While it feels like a small gesture, a lot of people doing that goes a long way with family members and friends.
0: Alright, and you can follow us on social media at missing CSM. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We'll be right back with private investigator Lou Barry. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. Welcome, Lou Barry, to the podcast. How are you today?
3: I'm
2: doing great, thank you, and uh, thanks for having me on. Of course. I feel like in the past couple of weeks,
1: we're like besties. We see each other, <laughs> other all the time now between board meetings and and other case updates, and you're joining us today to talk a little bit of DNA and Brianna Maitland, so... Uh, thanks for that. And I think the listeners are going to get a lot out of this conversation.
0: Okay. So let's uh, start with Brianna Maitland. Um, How long have you been working on her case?
2: I believe I started sometime late 2016, early 2017. Got involved. I I was familiar with the case when it first came out just because I, I have ties up in Vermont and I'd seen the case and it looked interesting. And but at the time, I was working full time, so it wasn't really anything that I had a vested interest in or, or was able to work on. But when um, I had a kind of a downtime, a slow time in in doing investigations down here, it uh, kind of rekindled my interest in that case. And we met with Bruce, her father, um, and offered assistance. And um, he was very thankful, grateful, I guess, is the best word, and, and t- told me about Greg, who had been working on a case much, much longer than I have, back in 2006 or 7. so he's got another 10 years into it than I have. We met up in um, the western part of Mass and went over the whole case, and um, I was impressed with the amount of effort that had been put in by him all all on his own time. Uh, it was just an interesting case with just so many facets to it, so... Um, it took me probably six months just to familiarize myself with who was who and what had been done and what hadn't been done just because there was so much information out there. It was a very complicated case, very lengthy case. And the state police had done uh, an incredible amount of work on it. Um, I had a meeting with the major crime unit up there. Actually, I had two meetings with them. Developed a very good rapport with them and since that time, have been exposed to to much of what they've done. Not everything, because they've just done so much, but they've really put a lot of time and effort into this case.
1: So Brianna disappeared on March 19th, so we're coming up on the anniversary, uh, March 19th, 2004.
2: That would be 19 years, correct?
1: 19 years. After all of this time, and you just said there's so much information Greg and Bruce and the independent investigation put together so much information. There's so many facets. The police, law enforcement has so much information. Do you ever get caught up in this feedback loop of, like, why hasn't this been solved after so long and so much information? Like, how does that not just make you want to pull your hair out?
2: <laughs> it, it certainly can be frustrating, and I think one of the most frustrating aspects of it to myself and, and i am certain to the to the state police that are working on it is that information that has been investigated and found to be irrelevant or not relevant or um not important um resurfaces a year two year, three five seven eight years later and um but it's changed a little bit it's like the old game of telephone tag so now that has to be re-looked at and it is very time consuming drains resources um You obviously don't want to turn down any lead or potential lead yet. On the other hand, sometimes that can get very frustrating. um, Reinvestigating things that have already been investigated just because somebody puts a little twist on
0: the information, you know, if if that makes any sense. And so you are a current private investigator. Greg is also a current licensed private investigator. You both still work with Bruce, Brianna's father. On this case and for private investigations for the missing, you both volunteer your time uh, as private investigators to private investigations for the missing, the nonprofit that Bruce has founded. I know the anniversary of the disappearance can be tough for Bruce. How is he doing um, as far as, uh, you know, emotionally and with uh, the investigation right now?
2: You know, I, I think he's handling it a lot better than than many people would. He's very matter-of-fact about it. He understands the situation. I'm sure this is a very difficult time of year for the family. And, you know, I wish we had some real good news for him. Um, You know, these investigations are a series of highs and lows. And you have what you you think is a good lead in, in... then all of a sudden you find out it's not such a good lead, and then things are quiet for a while, and then something else comes in, and you're hot on that, and, and then that peters out. So it's a—imagine, it, as a, for an investigator, it's like a roller coaster. I can't even imagine what it's like for family members. But, uh, Tim, one thing you mentioned I want to, wanted to point out, Greg and I do, yes, and we investigate Brianna's case for Bruce— Um, And we also investigate and work on cases for PI for the Missing. But those are two separate entities. Bruce started PI for the Missing, and he has been meticulous about keeping Brianna's case away from that organization because he doesn't want it to look like they're raising funds for his investigation. So. Um, Anything we do for Bruce is outside PI for the Missing and funded totally by Bruce, not by the organization. So I just think that's important because some people might get the wrong impression there that that's why the organization exists and it's contrary to that uh, completely.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because whenever we talk about that and how Bruce started it, we try to emphasize that he started it because of his daughter, or he started it in honor of his daughter, and this is to help other families. And he's done a remarkable job maintaining a very clear directive against all of the growing pains of starting a nonprofit because there's no money. There's never money. You're always raising money. You're always trying to raise money. You're always trying to spread the word and network. And you're always trying to do the job as well. And there's never been a frustrating moment that we can see when we have these board meetings where he just throws his hands up and wants to give up. He never seems to want to do that. He always maintains this direct line. And you said that he's handling it very well. There's so much there. You know, 19 years the nonprofit and I mean, Tim and I have seen firsthand other people who have missing loved ones not handle it well at all. And that's just something that I don't know where he gets that from, but that's just something that's always, I've always looked at like in admiration. How how can you just maintain that steady path through all of it?
2: You know, I think um Bruce understands what other families go through um, and no matter what the ultimate resolution of Brianna's case, um, as long as someone is is investigating it, um, which they are, uh, both you know the, the the law enforcement authorities and the private investigators, there's always hope that he'll get an answer. Um, and I think that's what he realizes is important to families, and that's why he started the organization was to allow them, other families, an opportunity to have the knowledge that someone cares and is still looking at the case. And and we, we run into, I run into the cases a lot because I I review them for private investigation for the missing. When I talk to the law enforcement agency, if they respond, um, oh yeah, we can't release that report because it's policy. Um, yet, you know, with the volume of cases they have, they're not doing anything. Uh, no one is looking at that case. And, and I feel really bad for the families. Um, and under those circumstances, because, you know, if if law enforcement isn't working on it and private investigators aren't working on it, then it's by pure chance if anyone solves it. Um, somebody's got to care, I guess. Is is the is the uh, final answer on that? Final word on that?
0: Yeah. That's true. In Brianna's case, Othram Labs has stepped in a little bit to try and assist with a DNA angle. And this is something that happened, I guess, a couple of years ago first, and then there were some results. Can you take us through um, this stage, uh, Lou? Well, there was
2: some potential evidence that was out on the scene that contained DNA that had been unidentified and ultimately was submitted by the state police into Othram Lab, um, and they, in fact, identified the source of the DNA. The individual who was identified has absolutely zero involvement in this case whatsoever. It was totally non-involved; just happened to have his DNA at the scene. In that case, I think the participation of Othram was, was extremely important for a number of reasons. Number one. It prevented the state police from having to spend a lot of resources in identifying a subject that wasn't involved, and secondly, it potentially cleared an individual who could have been felt to be a suspect um, at some point by by identifying him and providing, uh, you know, obtaining information that eliminated him as a possibility. So, um, you know, it's an aspect of oathsrams that we don't think about. We think about authorum using their genomic sequencing to identify a suspect, um, or to identify an unidentified individual. Um, but in this case, they, their expertise was utilized to, uh, eliminate a potential suspect by identifying him and saving that individual, a lot of, you know, involvement, (laughs) unfounded, um, and save the state police a lot of work that, um, would have
0: been fruitless in the end. Now, how can you say with such certainty um, that this is not someone who was a suspect? If I'm not mistaken, the DNA was taken from the crime scene, right?
2: Yes, from the cri- from the area of the crime, although we really don't have a crime scene. Uh, we, have a, we have a scene where her vehicle was left, whether that's the, the closest we have to a crime scene. Um, and there was some DNA located in that vicinity, But the individual, and I don't really want to get into too much what what was done and what wasn't done, but he's been eliminated as a suspect.
0: But this isn't someone who was on the radar previously, right?
2: Absolutely not, no.
0: Okay. So this isn't the kind of thing where this DNA matched someone who was on the radar. This is someone who did not match anybody on the radar, and Othram was able to identify that person, and then that person's alibi was very strong. I
2: assume that's the case with the alibi, but yes, they, they were not associated with the case except for the fact that their DNA happened to be located at the scene. But that doesn't, you know, people immediately jump to a conclusion that it isn't accurate in this case. Just because DNA is there, it doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that that person is involved.
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty good to mention that probably a lot of the work that Othram does involves eliminating people based on the DNA. And when you hear about this, and great point saying this isn't a crime scene, because we slip and say that quite a bit, because we see what the scene looks like based on
0: the pictures. I think it's debatable. No offense, Lou. Ooh, shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess uh, I'm looking at
2: it from the perspective that by the time the police were involved, um, the scene had most likely been contaminated from the state it was in when whatever happened happened the vehicle was gone um, so uh, the location is known but what occurred there um, and what evidence may or may not have been there is is unknown
1: so this could this could be somebody who perhaps Brianna gave a ride to a week ago and that person was on vacation during the time of her disappearance.
2: I suppose that's one alternative. Um, yeah, it could have been someone who threw something out of their car, and yep, it was at that
0: location. I mean, I
2: it, you know, DNA can be from a number of sources. So,
0: and what about the time frame? Was it was the DNA by that person left around the time of Brianna's disappearance, or is that not uh, exactly known?
2: It was located around the time of her disappearance. I, I don't think the exact state that it was left at the, at the in the area is known. And uh, you know and again I think the state has kept what it is and uh, who it is and everything under wraps and, and there's no reason not to because it's not relevant and they know it's not relevant. So it's a moot point at this point. Um, it just doesn't apply. Uh, it doesn't doesn't matter. Okay. Except for the public curiosity which is not the business they're in. <laughs> you know?
3: Right.
0: Right but I'm gl- I'm glad we cleared it up I think is the as best we could do without um without you know going too far. Um now what about the 11 persons of interest that the DNA was apparently run against? Um can you talk about that at all? Well, I you know, I could surmise
2: who those 11 people are, but I have never seen a list of um persons of interest and, and in you know, I think if, in fact, one of those persons of interest did it, there's 10 that didn't. <laughs> so um, to make public or anything, any of those names would be unfair to people that are not involved because it's just, you know, potentially destroying someone's reputation for for no reason, being unfounded. Uh, and I've seen it in other cases, not not related to this one at all, where... An individual was, you know, suspected to be involved. It wasn't involved, and it was proven that he wasn't involved because an arrest was made and a conviction was obtained by somebody else, yet for years um, this individual had fingers pointed at him that, oh, yeah, he did it, we know he did it, and he must have done it, and he didn't do it. (laughs) So, um, again, I, I understand it's frustrating for the people that are interested in the cases and everything not to be, you know, aware of every particular detail, but there's reasons for that. Um, and, um, they had, they should understand that, that it's not that nothing is being done or that they're, you know, deliberately trying to mislead the public. It's that it's not the way you do things. You don't, you know, publicly throw people out there. Um, just, you know, there's enough of that done by the public without law enforcement doing it.
0: Right. That's, that's our job. Leave that to us. <laughs> <laughs> um, and well i you know to be honest i when i first read that about 11 persons of interest that they compared the dna against i was really excited cuz i was like wow they've developed 11 persons of interest that's that seems like a lot. Like, I think we actually went through who we imagined those 11 people to be, and I think we got to, like, eight or something like that. But, I, you know, I have no idea on the accuracy. But my question is, when Vermont State Police puts that out there about 11 persons of interest that they compared DNA against, does that mean that they've collected DNA for Brianna's case specifically from those 11 people? Or is that 11 people that were on their radar that they could— uh, you know, find their DNA in CODIS.
2: I, I did not have an answer for that. I I do not know.
1: Anytime something like that is put into the public, I guess, put, put out there to the public by law enforcement, is this maybe a tactic that they might use to, if they're looking at certain individuals to see how they behave after something like that is out there in the public?
2: I suppose it could have been. I, again, I, Um, but I don't think that would be normal procedure. I mean, I just don't, I don't believe so. I think the reason it was put out there was because there was so much, there's been so much attention paid to the case, um, that, you know, this, and it was a big news, it was big news that they were, they were sending off this DNA and, um, you know, particularly in light of the past few years. Othram's involvement in these cold cases that they've been knocking off and they could span two or three a week sometimes. It's just incredible. So, um, you know, I think it's one of the ones a reflection of how much time, effort and expense they're putting into this case that, that they, you know, set, sent this off to Othram to have it analyzed. And, and, um, these are, you know, it's not a cheap thing to do. It's, it's, um, uh, it's an expensive proposition, and you have to have the DNA to do it. Um, and that's, I think, where Othram and, and labs like them are so valuable, because you can have all the DNA in the world, and if you don't have a suspect, then you forget it. Um, and as you well know, in in the town I was chief in, we just they just solved, not we, they just solved a 44-year-old homicide, um, at least identified the victim of a 44-year-old homicide through genomic sequencing uh, 44 years later. So it's, um, you know, it's incredible what the work they're doing out there really is.
1: And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program.
1: So next year is going to be 20 years and that's a round number and two decades. Where do you think we're going to be in after 20 years?
2: I'd like to say we have a suspect and he's in custody. There's two different perspectives here. Um, One is that of Bruce and the family is to find out what happened and that's Basically, what we're doing for him, you know as private investigators we we don't arrest people, we don't charge people we don't do anything else all we do is try and figure out what happened and then if it's uh, something that you know is enough has enough evidentiary value to turn it over to the police then then they take it from there um so that's our perspective is find out what what the heck happened and obviously the police perspective is find out what happened and find out who did it and then bring them to justice so they they go a little bit further than, than we do, obviously. But um, So I'd like to say, you know, you know we, we could figure out what happened to her, and oftentimes that will lead to the second part of who did it. But I think at this point, the family's priority is to find out what happened. That's, you know, in you know, it's been 20 years. God knows if whoever did it is still alive even. I mean, that's, that's another thing. In this case, I just mentioned the 44-year-old, the person of interest is deceased. Um, and has been for quite some time. So um, certainly the family, however, is, you know, they know, the, the children know what happened to their mother now, which is to them the most important thing. You, know, you can't punish a dead person. So,
1: I, I assume it's going to be a combination of scientific research, DNA, and, I guess, to use a cliche, old-fashioned detective work, but in your opinion, what is more important, what would be the more important discovery? Something that was directly connected to Brianna's person, found somewhere, or the identification of a suspect through DNA?
2: Well, I don't think you could do number two without number one. you got to have the DNA to identify it. I guess my strong... Assumption is any DNA that's at the scene of any value has been identified and is no longer assumed to be applicable to the case. So that precludes that. So any DNA now that is found would have to be found, you know, where she was or her clothing was or something. Now, You also run into the problem over time Um, You know, DNA does um, erode or or, um, is not as viable over time. So even if DNA is discovered, can you then extract enough to identify who that might belong to? That's a different different question completely, obviously. Um, So, uh, I mean, you never know. (laughs) These cases could be solved in a number of ways. Uh, She could be found, you know, Bodies are found uh, uh, if she is, in fact, deceased uh, years later. And um, who knows what might be at the scene that might help identify, depending on where she is and what was there, et cetera. Uh, A witness could come forward that isn't at this point um, known to us or hasn't at this point come forward. I mean, we don't know whether one people, two people um, whoever the perp was, did he tell somebody, did he not tell somebody? I mean, we, we don't know any of those things for sure. So, um, that's another way it could be solved. Or number three, somebody could confess. I mean, people sometimes do things that you would say, wow, that's why would they do that? But, um, you know, someone perhaps on their deathbed, someone who's, um, has a guilty conscience, someone who gets religion. I mean, there's a number of reasons why people might all of a sudden come forward. Maybe this person's done other things and, um, you know, wants to cleanse their soul, so to speak. I, I, I don't know. I I wouldn't be in to speak on people's motives sometimes, but, um, so I think there's still hope out there that this case will be solved. That's why we're still working on it. Um, yeah, there's, there's a key out there somewhere. It's just a matter of finding out uh, what it is. And, um,
0: right. That's what keeps um, us going. Yeah. Well, c- can you tell us a little bit about, um, what you've been doing lately and what, uh, the rest of 2023 holds for, uh, your investigation?
2: I try and keep in contact with the people on the periphery, friends, um, associates. We still get tips from time to time, which we follow up on. Um, you know, Greg and I will, <laughs> you know, independently cause he's in New York, obviously I'm in Massachusetts, so we don't see each other all the time, but we'll both go through our files and, you know, I'll get a call from Greg and say, hey, you know, I I was just reading this. What do you think about this? And do you think, was this ever followed up on? And, you know, so going back and seeing if we missed something, misread something, um, maybe put something aside for the time and forgot about it, I mean, that that happens. And sometimes, you know, you can go months without anything and then, bang, you get some information and... um, then it's you know you're, you're back into it again but you know the folder sits on the desktop of my computer uh, along with a couple others and from time to time I'll open it up and look at some stuff and go back and re-verify some information that we we had and you know the 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 funny I guess it's not a funny thing but the um uh, difficulty in these cases many times is because t- so much time goes past not only from the incident but even from the how long I've been involved in it and even longer for Greg, is you forget things. And you reread something and say, I don't remember that. And <laughs> so you have to keep refreshing your memory. And I can't even imagine what it's like for the state police because they've had you know different investigators over the years. And they've got a, a file room full of files. And um, as more time goes by, um, the harder and harder it gets. And people's memories are just they're not good. (laughs) I mean, witnesses are bad enough when they're fresh. Uh, eyewitnesses are not that reliable, uh, unfortunately. And you, you know, throw in five, 10, 15, 20 years, um, of time that goes by and their, um, memory is, you know, is even worse. You know, it's just, uh, it's just a fact, a human fact. That's all you, um, so that that can make it difficult but um you know we just do the best we can that's all
1: hopefully next year we're back here maybe talking about some development something aside from what are we going to do next year when it's 21 years so i think we're moving in the right direction
2: I, I will say this the case is not sitting there dormant i mean there there are things that are being done and there are still active uh, angles that are being uh, explored, um, particularly by the state police. So I, it's not like this case is just sitting there and nobody's doing anything with it, believe me. Um, it's it's still um, a priority, I would say, with investigators, because it is solvable. I mean, it, it is a solvable case. It, um, it, there's not a lot to go on, but there's still avenues that need to be explored and you know we've had people say wow it looks this this person looks really good and then you find out that they eh, yeah not so good after all Was a suspect but you know i i think the important thing is to keep it fresh by things like your podcast here to, to keep it in people's minds so that they know number one it's not forgotten and you know maybe somebody has information out there that has Again, for one reason or another, never come forward that could bring that little piece of information and and solve the case. And you know, I he keep going back to this case that we just had it out here a, a few days ago that, that it was finally publicly solved. But you know that with that one identification of a niece of the deceased, in within a, a very short period of time, the police did an amazing job of of. Following up, getting witnesses, you know, um, tracking down people, tracing the path of 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 where this victim was, and um, just absolutely incredible. But you you needed that one little piece to to get that the ball rolling. And once that was done, it was you know the scientific aspect started it, and then the 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 nitty gritty police work kind of finished it off. You know.
0: Very cool. All right. Well, thank you very much, Lou, for uh, for chatting with us here today. Um, we really appreciate it.
2: Well, you know, thank you guys for the service you provide um, to the these cases to the to families of, of these victims because um, that's the, the the real upside of of the way the media is today is that you can get the word out. You know, twenty years ago, even this stuff didn't exist. People outside the immediate area knew nothing of these cases. And now that's obviously totally changed and
0: uh, can really make a big impact on them.
1: And we'll be right back after a quick word from our
0: sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And now here's a segment that Crawl Space Media's Jennifer Amell put together a couple of years ago with Bruce Maitland about his journey and about the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing.
3: I mean, how I kind of deal with my daughter's disappearance, I describe it as a room that I go into uh, with a lot of memories, and it's, it's difficult sometimes to deal with, with those memories. And I knew that starting an organization like this, that kind of stuff would have to come up. So it took a while before I was uh, mentally ready to be able to do that. You have to make something good come out of all this. And the best way that I knew to make something good come out of Brianna being missing was to help other people.
0: Everything changed for Bruce Maitland when his daughter Brianna Maitland vanished after leaving her job at the Black Lantern Inn in Montgomery, Vermont on March 19, 2004. I'm Tim Polary and I'm Lance Reensterna, and we are
1: the hosts of the podcast Missing, which covers the stories of missing persons.
0: We also have the privilege of sitting on the board of the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing.
1: Private Investigations for the Missing was founded by Bruce Maitland. But that's not how we met Bruce. We actually met him back in 2016 when we were covering another mysterious and eerily similar disappearance for our show, Missing Maura Murray.
0: Back then, the nonprofit didn't exist yet, and Bruce was understandably a little guarded when it came to opening up about his personal tragedy to a couple of podcasters. So here's a clip from our second ever episode on Brianna's case.
1: He said things during a conversation that wasn't recorded uh, that he kind of brought up during our interview where... You know brianna is in is in a little room in a box in his head you know he doesn't want to open this up so he prefers at this point to not talk about brianna as his daughter as as a person he wants to talk about the case and said he will answer as much as he possibly can but he has shut off a lot of the memories that he's had uh he he Not intentionally. He just said, you know, it was a tough time. It was a terrible time, and he doesn't remember a lot of what happened in the immediate few months and years around that time. We've been covering this case for five years now, and in honor of the 17th anniversary of Brianna's disappearance, it seems like Bruce might finally be getting closer to some answers.
0: Brianna Maitland was born on October 8, 1986, so that made her 17 years old when she went missing from the old Dutchburn house, which was basically a boarded-up, um, abandoned house about a mile away from where she was working as a dishwasher at the Black Lantern Inn.
1: By all accounts, she left work at about 11 p.m. that night, and her car was found backed up into the side of this broken down building, the rear of the car, the trunk of the car was almost hung up onto the foundation of the building. And anyone who uh, is interested or has researched true crime and has seen that picture, you'll see how it says a million things, but really says nothing at the same time. It really stands out as a picture of of a true tragedy. Something really wrong happened that night.
0: Yeah, the car must have been backed up in a certain way to, and at a certain speed to have hit the house, the abandoned house, and to get hung up um, onto it. And so I know a lot of web sleuths and law enforcement has looked at these photos and looked at the tire tracks and really tried to put these pieces together. And it is still confusing after all these years.
1: That's correct. There have been a lot of theories about what happened, how that car could have gotten there and where she went after that car crashed into the back of the home. Was there somebody in her back seat? Were there people following her in another car? Were there people waiting for her at a certain distance down the road by that house and caused her to back into there? People have looked at the tires and how the wheel was turned and was she trying to back up and then around a car to get out of there? So many questions come from that picture, and yet it's almost 17 years later, and here we are again with absolutely no sighting, no credible evidence to Brianna's whereabouts.
0: And no shortage of kind of shady characters surrounding her at that point of her life. And we've produced about 15 episodes on Brianna's case, and we have spoken about a lot of those characters. And uh, we spoke to some of Brianna's friends, and I think those interviews are really interesting. They go back a few years now, but her friends were well aware of who she was hanging out with and who was in their circle and... It still seems like the truth is being hidden. And that happens to a lot of people
1: in these situations, these missing person situations. They do get involved with these elements that take them down. Um, A lot of people get out of them, but some people have the unfortunate circumstance of falling too deep into these uh, situations. And that's what Bruce wants to do with private investigations for the missing is try to give something back to these families and make something good come out of his own daughter's tragedy.
0: Bruce was pretty frustrated and really still is by the investigation or lack thereof from the Vermont State Police. And that led him to start speaking with private investigators. Greg Overacker, who Lance, he's become our friend, too. He reached out to Bruce not long after Brianna went missing. He saw Brianna's missing poster while he was on the thruway in New York. And his heart just went out to the family and he reached out. And they've been friends and been working on this case ever since. And really, throughout conversations between them, it led to Bruce having the idea about private investigations for the missing because private investigators are not cheap, Lance. And when you're talking about these expenses, a lot of these underserved families aren't able to
1: cover that. And that's why their loved one continues to stay missing because now they're not even
0: a priority for the law enforcement as well. And we recently sat down with Bruce to speak about what is going on with private investigations for the missing. We are approaching 17 years missing
3: for Brianna, and i just wondering how you're feeling at this point. Seems like it was uh, you know, a whole lifetime ago. and. There's times when it just seems like it was yesterday. It's just kind of a weird back and forth on it.
1: One of the things that we often tell people is uh and, and we sort of do it in a in a bragging way, and I hope you don't mind, but we say what you've done with Brianna's disappearance and and taken that to uh private investigations for the missing is so impressive to us and and we, we often tell people you are the best example of taking something tragic and trying to make something good out of it, in in the best way you can. And you saw a need for this. A lot of other people, you know, know that there's a, a, a drop off with um the priority when when someone is missing. It's and it's so quick when someone goes missing, and law enforcement doesn't have something within a certain period of time. There's a drop off, and and what you want to do is make sure that that doesn't happen anymore
0: we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor thanks to our sponsors and now we're back to the program was there a time that the vermont state police gave you the indication that brianna's case was no longer a priority
3: oh they never said that by they never said that to me by their actions at times uh that's what i took that it you know had slipped down to obviously a lower level and that time probably came, I mean, it was a, a priority for a few months. And then it became a kind of a, what I thought was a lower priority. Then about, uh, about two years later, I felt that it, they did a lot more work on it. And then it was just been kind of a, uh, when they have time. And that kind of remains so to this day.
1: So it was sort of an on again off again situation and when it became an on again situation did it feel like there was just a little bit less energy put into it or maybe someone new was approaching it so they needed to be debriefed and and that took a little bit longer is that is that kind of how it felt
3: well, I think it was mostly in response to uh, information that they would receive I've been through said this before I guess uh, in the past but I mean they they have a you know Police in general, and I think this is you know, nationwide, and I'm not knocking the Vermont State Police, but they obviously they, they have a reactive time, what I call reactive time, and, that, and that's right away, if you're fortunate. Sometimes that doesn't happen right away either, but they do have a reactive time where they're actively trying to pursue leads and trying to solve it and uh, things like that, and then, then it goes into uh, kind of a semi-reactive time, where they only react to information as they get it they don't actively try to go out and pursue leads and then it goes cold and then during those cold times nothing happens until some a new piece of information comes and then you know different police departments respond to it differently some of them will hop right on it and some of them just get to a point where they don't even care about looking at it you know it's back in the corner of a file somewhere and, and that's where it sits until somebody like our organization, gets involved and gets kind of the, some, some groundwork started and maybe turns up some interest in heat, and, and then it goes back into the reactive stage again.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that that they turn up some some heat on it. Uh, and you said previously that it took fourteen years before you made sort of the conscious decision to uh, start this organization, and that was with uh, private investigator Greg Overacker, who's one of the heroes of of Crawl Space. How did that conversation happen? And I'm I'm kind of wondering about the genesis of like physically speaking those words with Greg and saying. What do we have to do next? And did you, did you see the, these examples happening throughout the 14 years where maybe something came to your attention that you wanted something to be followed up on, and then you realized, wow, I have to go pay somebody to do this?
3: Because Greg didn't live in the area where Brianna disappeared, we would have discussions on, well, when I would have Greg go up to Vermont to do some work for me. Greg, to his credit, I mean, he would only ever charge me for the expenses to go up there. Even so, I mean, it was it was a lot of money. So what we ended up having to do, and this is a case uh, no person that has a loved one out there should really have to do, but you ended up you end up kind of prioritizing that. You know, you you can't afford to send a guy up there and say just go on up there, Greg, and uh, you know here's here's all these people that should be talked to and be interviewed you end up saying well i guess we'll have to maybe you know prioritize this one over that one or leave this one go in the tv world no stone goes unturned in crime shows you know they just do it all up and wrap it all up in an hour well that's not how it really works you know when i could see you know with that you, it kind of the idea begins to evolve as it's like hey there's just so many other people even in worse situations than i am that uh, don't have any access to this you know the need is just tremendous and and no one else is really doing it. I mean we're it and
0: even to us as board members, there's a whole end of it that we don't really see and one of those things we found out live on the air that you speak with Nikki Johnson regularly more often than we would have realized, and Nikki, of course, her dad Archer Ray Johnson went missing back in nineteen eighty six from Brooklyn, Washington. Yeah, he's been so helpful to me, just in my own emotions and feelings. Well, that is really great to hear. Have you spoken with him? Yeah, we've talked once a week or so um, on the phone. And it just, he helps validate how I feel. And I don't know, it's just, you guys have been... I'll say this, even if we don't get to the bottom of it, you guys have been helpful. I mean, just, I, I guess I feel like I'm not alone. Good. Good. That is and, great to hear. Yeah. yeah. And th- that's news to us, by the way. I did not yeah. know that you and Bruce uh, spoke. I mean, yeah. that's how uh, how many sort of uh, moving parts there are to P.S. for the missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone's got a, a goal and they're they're working on it. And we don't even hear about it all. So it's really awesome when we actually hear something like that I guess what leads you to do that why why do you pick up the phone and, and have those conversations
3: well I mean there's there's no better way in my mind to help someone than, than the help comes from someone that's actually stood in their shoes at some point you know, Nikki's a really brave person for taking this on and uh, you know I just wanted to help her in any way I could uh, you know to and and not just in the case part of it, but more so in the dealing with her feelings. I have this, you know, this or that is going through my mind, or I feel this or that way. And I was able to validate that for her. There's people out there that need help in, in more ways than just a private investigator. And, and what what bit I can do, you know, I'm willing to do that. So it's fair to say that you're Experience after years
0: of living through the disappearance of your daughter, uh, that led you directly to uh, create this uh, private investigations for the missing because you felt there was a need out there.
3: Yes, because your other alternative was to pay, pay short-term stuff to private eyes. To, and this is what I, I've learned myself in talking with other people uh, around the country. I mean, your other alternative is to pay a, pay a PI, which you can't afford on any kind of long-term basis. So you end up paying them to do specific tasks or something like that. And, uh, you know, there's just not enough money for that. And it's just a terrible situation. And then you hear people that have lost their whole life savings, you know, to try to find the, you know, their missing loved one. Because you'll do about anything. I think it, really the idea just kind of started with uh, that uh, it's like, oh my gosh, all these other people out here have had, bad experiences or have just had uh zero help i mean the truth is it was probably 14 years after brianna went missing before i could bring myself to do this uh so it took a it took a long It's a big step for me even now sometimes uh to kind of uh, because you have to i thought about it for probably a year before i actually did anything about it too so and because you realize that there's certain things that you go through that you're going to have to go through uh in your own mind and it's it's what i call the hard road uh it's just it's not taking the easy road in dealing with uh you know dealing with uh brianna's disappearance but it's something that has to be, I, I felt at some point you just get this overwhelming, well, it's, this has just got to be done and it has to happen. And, you know, I'm going to pursue this in the same way that I've pursued to continue looking for Brianna. There's a certain pain that comes out of it every time. But you learn to deal with it, just like you learn to deal with other things in life that happen to you. You know, it's just, that's the way it is. So mm-hmm. you, that's, that's why I call it, the, you know, the hard road. You know, it's not easy. And I don't mean to denigrate other people that have, you know, miss, missing children and missing loved ones. I mean, for choosing another road. I really don't because everyone has to deal with it. If there's, you know, I've learned everybody deals with it differently. And, and that's all OK because they're all out there doing the best they can.
1: And then you mentioned some people, and and you know through the no, no fault of their own, and, and you said you there were times when you'd uh, travel down that uh, road where you get depressed, and so that in my head it looks like a dead end, right? So then you have to kind of claw through that and and travel uh, you know further um, and and get back on that uh, that hard road, but at least you're traveling forward, right? Like at least it's going to a destination, and I feel like that's the case with the nonprofit as well. Is it is it looking like that for you when you're when you take a Step back. Do you see the organization becoming this um this engine to travel this road? Ha! That was a great metaphor.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, as you guys know, I mean, my dream is to have this as a nationwide organization. I would like to help as many people as possible. So that's always been the goal that's out there, and that remains the goal. I see no end to to growth. You know, even years down the road, if I'm not around anymore, I, I want to. See the see like the mission continue, so it's there's no end to it. The mission is pretty simple, really though. It's it's the, we we want to be able to provide at no cost PIs to help families find their missing loved ones. You know, if there was a one sentence definition, that would be it. And it gets a little more complicated and nuanced as we go on. And all these other connections that you just spoke about, they kind of come out as a benefit. Stuff that's happened that's really surprised me. But, uh, you know, it's a very simple, simple mission. There's just so many people that need help, and and, and we want to try to help them out in any way we can. And then it becomes, you know, part of what you guys do, Tim and Lance, and, and, uh, you know, obviously what the PIs are doing behind the scenes. You know, I, I try to help out where I can. And all the volunteers, it's great. I mean, it's almost every day somebody needs some help, and we'd love to be able to help them all.
0: But there is hope for Brianna's case. Othram Labs has been working with DNA samples taken from the crime scene. Through the work
1: that we've done with Bruce and with Private Investigations for the Missing, we've had companies like Othram reach out to us to offer their help. And Othram is, according to their website, the first private laboratory built to apply the power of modern parallel sequencing to forensic evidence. In short... That means that they decipher genetic identities so these missing person cases can be solved. And Brianna's case is one that is in their pipeline. They're currently working on it, and we will provide updates as they come to us.
0: For a deep dive into Brianna Maitland's case and many more stories like hers, listen to our show, Missing, on the Crawlspace Media Network.